Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Lisa? Can I finish? Michael? Now I can hear you. Now I can hear you. Okay, (laughs) good. All right, let me, let's take two. Let's start this over again. Good evening, and welcome to Clear and Convincing the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, O'Connorhan from Little Rock, Arkansas. In honor of National Day of Remembrance for Murder Victims, I thought instead of the little cute facts, I would open with a poem that was written by Mary Elizabeth Fry in 1932. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I'm not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glint on snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. And everyone has probably also noticed that tonight's episode is not about Betty Broderick. We invited a guest to appear on the show, and she had a conflict with tonight's date. So to accommodate her schedule, we reshuffled our schedule. And so tonight we're going to do murder for hire cases and talk about them. And then on October 16th, We will be talking about Betty Broderick, and we'll have a friend of Dan and Linda Broderick's on to talk about them, uh, because a lot of the story out there is from Betty, and we want to have an opposing viewpoint on that. So tonight, we're going to be looking at a category of cases rather than a single case. Murder for hire cases are among the most challenging cases to investigate, and they are difficult to prove in court. 
Generally, there's very little evidence tying the so-called trigger man to the crime. And due to the nature of the crime, there's usually little or no evidence linking the person who contracted the murder to the crime or to the trigger man. The cases we're going to look at resulted in successful prosecutions and the parties responsible for the first four cases were convicted. We'll also be talking about several cases that have resulted in acquittals. As always, this is a live show. Calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Hello, Michael. How are you tonight? I'm good. I'm going to be in and out tonight for the first little bit. I am actually trying to effort to make this sound a little bit better right now. So uh, I'm going to be in and out. I okay. just wanted to let you all know I'm here. I'm just efforting to make this a better experience for everybody listening. So go ahead. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about murder for hire. And, of course, everybody's heard of them. There are cases where uh, a person is murdered, and then years later they arrest a business partner or a wife or a mother-in-law, father-in-law, and charge them with hiring someone to carry out the murder. And then we also hear about cases like Dahlia DiPolito, where she was attempting to hire someone to murder her husband, but police were alerted, and they were able to come in and get involved and prevent a murder from being carried out. So the first four cases we're going to talk about, unfortunately, were actual murders were carried out. And since we're going to do this in a kind of chronological fashion, we'll start with the murders of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, who was also a councilwoman, Margaret Sherry. Uh, This murder occurred in Biloxi, Mississippi on September 14, 1987. And it was... uh, It was a tangled tale because essentially a former law partner of Judge Sherry named Pete Halat had been stealing from a client who was serving a life sentence in Angola in Louisiana for a murder that he committed in 1971. And that client was upset when he was told that Judge Sherry stole his money So he decided to arrange a hit, and Judge Sherry and his wife were both killed in their home by a hitman hired by uh, this prisoner from Angola. Now, something a lot of people may not be aware of, in 1970s, 80s, Angola was a pretty wild correctional facility, and there were a lot of guards who were corrupt, needing to earn more money than they were getting being paid by the Department of Corrections. And so it was very easy for uh, Mr. Nix to basically run a blackmail operation posting ads in men's Lonely Heart magazines and then fleecing people who wrote back either for money that they'd say they need for uh, car repair or legal trouble, 
And then when the victim got wise and got tired of shelling out money, then the blackmail would start. And this was during the time when being a homosexual was not acceptable. Uh, and it could have cost people their livelihoods, their jobs, their lives, their families. They didn't want to be outed. And so they paid blackmail money. Um, Kirksey Nix planned to get all this money in order to buy his way out of his murder conviction and buy a pardon from the governor of Louisiana, which in those days may have happened because that was during Edward Edwards' heyday. Um, So it took, the FBI began investigating in conjunction with the Biloxi Police Department in 1987 and then in 1989, information was developed that led to the Lonely Hearts Gay Men Blackmail Scheme, and that turned the case into a federal case, and the FBI essentially took over the investigation. Um, it took them about two more years to go to a grand jury and get indictments, They tried some of the uh, parties. It was a lot of parties were involved. There was Kirksey Nix. There was Pete Halat. There was a man by the name of John Ransom. There was another man by the name of Mike Gillich. Um, And Biloxi in those days, that's a show all into and of itself. And we may look at that a little bit more in depth on another episode. Uh, And then after those trials... They, they haven't charged anyone with murder at that point. But they did have conspiracy and, again, the, the interstate and the wire fraud and mail fraud charges. Then in 1992, they were able to develop some drug cases and additional convictions were, were made. And by that point, Mike Gillich, who had begun serving his time in a prison in Pennsylvania, which is not a pleasant proposition for a man who has lived his entire life in Biloxi and who's been protected by police and never done a day in jail. Um, He was not very happy with this. And initially his plan was to bribe a witness to say that he was forced to lie on the stand by one of the FBI agents, an agent by the name of Keith Bell. And um, unfortunately for Mr. Gillich, while the gentleman uh, agreed to go along with Mr. Gillich's plan for $25,000 or $10,000, whatever was being offered, uh, the gentleman turned around and contacted Mr. Bell and told Mr. Bell what Mr. Gillich had been planning. And so the FBI was able to obtain audio tapes, and Mr. Gillich had more conversations with people on the outside to uh, facilitate this bribery scheme, and that led to additional federal charges uh, against Mr. Gillich and a girlfriend, and it was at that point that Mike Gillich, who had been inside on the murder-for-hire case, decided that he wanted to come out, and he was willing to talk to Mr. Bell and uh, give them information about who was involved and what was involved. And he did provide a lot of information. The FBI had 
gotten a lot of information during their investigation. And so between the two of them, they were able to successfully prosecute and convict multiple parties who were involved in this conspiracy. Uh, And they are... Kirksey Nix is serving a life sentence in federal prison. Uh, Pete Halat was convicted, and he served his time, and he was released. Uh, Another woman by the name of Lorraine Sharp, she served her time and was released. Mike Gillich was able to secure a reduction in his sentence, and he was released. He unfortunately died of cancer in 2012. And... um, but it took, I think the, the convictions, the final convictions were in 1996 um, or 98. So it, it took a long time for them to finally uh, put everyone away. And unfortunately, no one was ever charged with the actual murders. Um, I There probably wasn't enough evidence. Even though the FBI developed a lot of information, there just wasn't enough evidence to uh, charge them or convict them of murder in state court or in federal court. So that is uh, the murders of Vincent Sherry and Margaret Sherry. Michael, you still you still working? Okay. He is still working, so we're just going to move on. Uh, The next case we're looking at is the murder of Greg Smart. He was a young man in Derry, New Hampshire. In 1989, he married his uh, a person he thought was the love of his life, Pamela Wojcic. And they started their life together as a married couple in Derry, New Hampshire. They had both recently graduated from college. Uh, Greg began working with his father in a life insurance business or agency. And Pamela was at, uh, working at a local school called Winniconnet High School. Um, and she was some kind of media director, so she wasn't really a teacher uh, she did different programs for uh, for the students. They participated in a contest to make a an orange juice commercial. Uh, she had a, a program she called Project Self-Esteem, and she was supposed to be trying to help these young uh, poverty-stricken kids you know, improve their lives. Uh, Unfortunately, instead of really helping the kids, she took advantage of their uh, position. And in 1989 or early 1990, she began an affair with one of the students by the name of Billy Flynn. And then... uh, She broke off the affair because she wanted to work on her marriage. She told him her husband beat her. Uh, She manipulated him into finally, on May 1st, 1990, going into their their condo. She left a bulkhead door open, 
uh, so that Billy and his friends could get into the condo. And there they waited for Greg Smart. She created an alibi for herself by attending a, a school board meeting. And um, they were waiting when Greg came home, and they killed him. And then during the investigation, she didn't tell him about the alleged the affair she had. She didn't tell him that Billy was jealous or the police that Billy was jealous. Uh, she acted like she didn't know who was involved or, or why this happened. And so um, it eventually did come out. Uh, a co-conspirator had provided a weapon, and his father realized that the weapon had been used and cleaned, and so he brought it to police, and that was when they were able to start identifying these teenagers, and that led back to Pam Smart. Of course, she claims that she was innocent. Um, she only promised speakers and I think $200 to the kids to kill her husband. So uh, murder for hire doesn't have to be thousands of dollars or that much money at all. It doesn't have to be any money. It can be anything of any value. Um, she was tried and convicted, and she is in uh, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York State because New Hampshire does not have a life uh, facility capable of uh, having a prisoner, a female prisoner for life. <clears throat> and that is about all with, with uh, Pam Smart. She did testify at her trial and tried to uh, downplay everything as far as her involvement in the murders. Uh, but unfortunately, she was on tape, and she made a lot of statements that uh, to a, a young woman by the name of Cecilia. Uh, and the statements that she made, basically, if you're innocent, you're not going to be saying the kind of things that Pam was saying. So um, that didn't go over quite as well with her jury. And um, all of the kids involved in the murder uh, have all served their time and been released. They were able to plead guilty, and they all testified against her. So they were kids. Their lives are you know, pretty much ruined, but at least they are able to come out into society, and hopefully um, they will be productive citizens and um, lead productive lives from now on. Uh, Michael, are you there yet? Are you still working? Okay. All right. The next one we're going to go to uh, was in the news I'm earlier still this year. I'm you're, you're still working. I don't know if I like this talking to myself stuff. You're fine. Just whenever you need me, I'm listening <laughs> to you on another way. So it makes me, me nervous. <laughs> you're doing fine. All right. All right, the next case, like I said, we it was in the news earlier this year, Thomas Bartlett Whitaker. Uh, he was set to be executed by the state of Texas on February 22nd, 2018. And really just 45 minutes before the scheduled execution, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles agreed to grant uh, Mr. Whitaker's request for clemency. And that was... Uh, approved by Governor Greg Abbott 
And so Mr. Whitaker was moved into uh, life. His sentence was commuted to life without the possibility of parole. And I believe I read somewhere that he also actually had to enter an agreement that he will not seek parole. I don't know. A Texas law at the time he was convicted, there may not have been life without parole, true life without parole. And so um, that may be why the state secured a, a commitment from him not to seek parole down the line. But Whitaker probably will seek it, uh, no matter what he said. So uh, Mr. Whitaker was um, kind of a almost a male version of Dahlia DiPolito. Um, he had convinced his parents that he was in college and doing marvelously well. And, in fact, on the night of December 10th, 2003, the Whitaker family went out to a local restaurant in Sugarland, Texas, which is in Fort Bend County. It's around Houston, uh, but, well, nothing's really around Houston, but it's in that, that south eastern part of Texas, um, at least as far as I know Texas geography. And so they were going out. They were celebrating his upcoming graduation from college. Little did they know that Whitaker's friend, Steve Champagne, and another guy, I think his name was Chris Bashir, were knew what their schedule was, knew where they were going to be, and were following them and watching them and would soon be waiting at their house for them when they got home. Hey, Lisa, um, can you hear me? Yes. And we work. Yay. Yay. And it's very too. clear. Yeah, it sounds yeah, really clear. Yeah, I'm running through a soundboard. Oh, okay. Okay, well, you're going you're gonna, to um, do that next week, um, like at 6 o'clock? Yeah, we're going to try to Although get it done quicker. Nico, I'm just teasing you. I'm sorry. Nico LaHood will be here, so I won't be talking to myself. At least I'll be talking to him. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to try to get it done quicker next week for you. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Perfect. All right, so where were we? We're talking about Thomas Whitaker. Um, so when the Whitaker family got home, uh, Chris Bashir was waiting for them, and Bart's, he, he was called Bart by the family, which should tell us a lot of things about him. Um, the, his mother, Patricia, and his brother, Kevin, were shot and killed outside. His father was shot, but thankfully not killed. Bart went into the house, and they arranged to have him shot in the arm or the shoulder so that It'll look like he was shot, but he wasn't really seriously injured. Um, and they were going to, you know, play it as a home invasion gone wrong. And um, this is another episode in and of itself because it, the twists and turns in the investigation are mind-boggling. But at any rate, um, Patricia and Kevin were killed. Kent was seriously wounded but he survived. 
and Bart had a minor wound, a couple days in the hospital, you know, maybe a surgery, and then he was out. Um, turns out in the investigation, when the police start investigating, they find out that Bart was not going to be graduating from college that year. In fact, Bart hadn't been going to college for a period of time. And Bart hadn't been working. And apparently Bart had the idea that his dad was worth way, way more money than Kent was actually worth. Kent was an executive. He made, you know, a decent, comfortable living. They probably, he and his wife probably had investments and had been smart with their money. And, but he wasn't worth as much as Bart thought he was. So the joke would have been on Bart if he had been successful and actually killed his entire family because right. he wouldn't have been inheriting as much money as he thought he would have been. Um, yeah, it would probably funny, be poor, a little bit smarter to, it would probably be poor, a little bit smarter to make sure everything was going to work out. Poor Kent Whitaker. Um, he basically, I guess he, he believes that the police are exaggerating what he was worth. And saying, right. well, I wasn't worth that much. But, you know, he's not thinking, that's what Bart thought you were worth. Your son who dropped out of college, that's what he thought you were worth. You Dang. So, that's a wake-up call. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, now, Kent Whitaker is a... He had to forgive his son. He lost his wife. He lost his son, Kevin. But for him to go on, he had to forgive Bart. Um, He doesn't want to see Bart out of prison, I don't think. But he didn't want to see him uh, executed either. And I think that part of the reason the the, uh, board granted the clemency request was because really if they had executed Bart, if Texas had executed Bart Whitaker, they would have been re-victimizing Kent Whitaker. Because he, right. he was in a bad position. He lost his wife and, and younger son, and the state of Texas was going to execute his younger son, his older son. Um, so that was why they eventually decided to uh grant him clemency. Now, one of the other arguments made was, well, Bart wasn't the trigger man. He didn't shoot anybody. He didn't kill anybody. But he's the one that set this in motion. He told Champagne and Bashirs where they would be, when they would be there, when they were coming home. He knew that they were going to be in the house. He knew that they were going to have a getaway car right outside the house. Um, you know, he basically led his mother, father, and brother into a trap. And how anyone can think that he's not as culpable, if not even more culpable, than the person who pulled the trigger, I'd like them to explain that to me. Contact any, uh, what do they call them, uh, the... Basically, the uh, Innocence Project people. I'm sure they probably have a uh, conversation with you about that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. And you know what? I can tell you that um, not a damn word they 
said to justify it would make a bit of sense to me. Not to not to interject something new <laughs> yeah. or to change the subject or anything, but did you see the uh, uh, Innocence Project is already involved? Did you see the Innocence Project's already involved in the Cosby thing? I picked up on that on CNN this afternoon. I was like, you've got to be No, I did not. I did not see that. I saw that he was sentenced to three to ten years. Yeah. I mean, and once um, again, I'm going to hop off this subject real quick, but I do want to say, I mean, let's be honest here. The man's 81. I don't think he's going to re-offend, uh-huh. but you know what? He's still a bastard for what he did, so good for him for putting him in jail. I don't feel a bad way Yeah, way. I, I don't think, although I don't know, some some of the statements, and I think we talked about this briefly before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if a man's trying to give me a pill and telling me to take a pill, I don't give a shit who he is. I'm going to tell him where to stick that pill. Exactly. Even though but I think I, you know, I, I was raised, drink. I was raised by very strong women, and I can tell you, if he was going to get violent, I get I get violent right back. You hit me, and you're going to have a redheaded wildcat on your hands, who's going to be trying to kill you. I, I make no bones about that. If you hit me, I'm coming back at you. I mean, you're going to have to kill me, and I'm right. going to be doing my best to kill you. Um, and and I, I put off that vibe because people are afraid of me. And I've never, I've never had to do anything. I just, I have this vibe like, do not mess with me. Do not test right, me exactly. or try me. Because it will not end well for you. So, um, right, exactly. so some of that, I mean, you know, where he where he secretly drugged a drink, but a lot of these women said, oh, he gave me a pill and I took it. And then I got oh, really? sleepy. Wonder and then I didn't know pop. what was happening. I don't know. Well, what's the other know, thing more that the, uh, Richard Pryor... Uh, so tell Bill, Bill Cosby when Bill Cosby gave was given Eddie Murphy you know grief about how much he swore and talked about sex and all that stuff and Eddie Murphy you know Bill Cosby was like an idol and and everything and so he goes to Richard Pryor he says Richard I mean he doesn't like my comedy he he thinks I go too far and and I I, I use four letter words and maybe I should maybe I should change my show maybe I should change and Richard Pryor says Eddie. Tell Bill Cosby to have a Coke and a smile and shut the F up. Yeah, little did we know what Bill was really doing. <laughs> I know, really. But, uh, no, I, I, if, if, he was, if he was surreptitiously drugging women, but this was like the early, late 70s, early 80s. Honey, women were doing drugs. If somebody had drugs. They were on that man, and I wonder how many of these women. Maybe some of this was regret, right, for their actions. Well, I know one of them apparently uh, spoke on uh, CNN, and I didn't mean to get off on the tangent. I'm sorry, everybody that oh, no. that uh, listened in to listen about murder for hire, <laughs> and I kind of just interjected, but. This is something that happened today, so you know it is something that's on my mind as well. But uh, yeah, I had they had a person on at CNN today, and uh, the lady said that she was an actress that he kind of you know, hey, you want to get in 
good with Hollywood. Yeah, you got to hang out with me. And she said, like, he mm-hmm. turned in. She said she was pretty good friends with him. And then all of a sudden, like, this one night, he turned into, like, this freaking crazed man and, like, overpowered her and did whatever he did. Ah. Uh... I mean, I hate to hear it, though. You know, it's one of them things he used his position to. uh, Yeah. He used his position to. uh, To definitely. His advantage. The thing that bothers the thing that bothers me about a lot of this that's going on right now is men out there. A woman that maybe you went on a couple of dates, you slept with her, you never called her back. Uh, right. You know, because a lot of times, a lot of the a lot of the statements that women make, it's their perception of actions that, in that time, in that moment, they didn't object. Only now they know it was wrong. How can you now know something is wrong if it was wrong then? Right. And right. The, it bothers me. It bothers me. The lack of due process. Well, you know, I mean, we talked about like... cases where people are convicted and they're in prison, and they have people that say they're innocent, and their past crimes or past allegations of of conduct, like Rodney Reed, those prior rapes don't exist in the minds of a lot of people because he was never convicted. Well, now, and yet, to be fair, those same people. Fair, though, are, no, 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 wait a second. Wait a second, Michael. Those same people are calling Brett Kavanaugh a rapist. Based I on agree allegations. on the Kavanaugh situation. The Kavanaugh situation, way outside of the statute of limitations. If he did it, he's a bastard. Uh, once again, same as, same as Bill Cosby. If he did it, he's a bastard yeah. and he's a piece of shit. But with Cosby. I do want to point out the uh, one that he was actually convicted for. I'm not sure what the uh, statute is, but apparently it was for two th- one that happened in 2004. 2000, yeah, yeah, that was uh, Constant. And right, I think her name is right. Andrea Constant or something like that. Yeah, no, I and I know that was something that happened in 2004, but you know, it's like, it's like that we we talked about the Assisi and you know, a woman's perception of a situation and a man's perception of a situation being two different things. And the man never thinks he's doing anything wrong because the woman never tells him he's doing anything wrong. Ladies, tell him when you don't like it, tell him. And if he don't like that, then you don't need his ass. Right. (laughs) And And no job is worth your self-respect. We can briefly, under any circumstances. We can, we can briefly, because it's all going to come to a head before the next show, we can briefly get off into this Kavanaugh thing real quick. My deal with the uh, first accuser, okay, I'm willing to uh-huh. uh, trust that one a little bit. The one that came out, I believe, today and the one that came out over the weekend, honestly, and all you uh, liberal, you know, Me Too movement people can go ahead and just my my Twitter handle is at MPC0529. Go ahead and hit me up with the hate mail, but I call bullshit. Uh, there's literally nobody cooperating. Nobody said they were at the party. Mm-hmm. She said she was drunk and can't remember shit. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that's another thing that, that nobody takes into account. She's drunk and can't remember shit. Well, maybe she's drunk and her inhibitions are out the window. And exactly. so, you know, she's going to do things because, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't already know this, let me give you this little lesson. When you imbibe alcohol, you start doing shit you would never do sober. You say shit you would never say sober. Because when you drink, you kind of become another person. Right, exactly. And depending on the level of alcohol, oh, my God. You know, that's. That's why a lot of a lot of uh, Darwin stories, especially in the South, start with the his last words were here, hold my beer. Right. Oh, that went over like a lead balloon. You're too young for Darwin, like just like the Eddie Murphy story. Now somebody <laughs> my age were to laugh their ass off because they heard that story before, and it, it like <laughs> totally went over your head. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm 28. I'm getting up there in age. Eddie Murphy Raw. And watch Eddie Murphy Raw. I think that's on Netflix. I'll have to check it out. Because mm-hmm. that's wrong with him the in the full red leather bodysuit thing? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. He talks about a lot that. of things. And, you know, I mean, that that's one of those shows. I can watch it. I can't watch comedy shows on Netflix because I start laughing so hard that I'm going to choke. I was trying to watch Ali Wong one night and she's talking about having kids, right. which I have no experience with, but I was laughing so hard. It's like, okay, I cannot watch this because I'm going to start coughing and cough my head off. <laughs> so, right. Cause when I get started laughing, I'm 54 years old it's not the same as it was when I was in my twenties. It's not pleasant. So um, absolutely, absolutely it's changed. But, you know, uh, getting back into this, you were talking about the uh, murder for hire. Yeah, definitely. I think the mm-hmm. person that uh, I think the person that hires the person to murder somebody or the hitman, so to speak, to turn a phrase, I believe they're completely as culpable, if not more so. You know, yeah. honestly, as right. cold and callous as this sounds, the hitman's just there to do a job. There's no feelings there. There's feelings in the person Correct. that's hiring the hitman. So let's be honest. Correct. If anybody should get the needle in that situation, it should be the person who hired them. Exactly. That, you know, that's the way I look at it because it's it's the person who does the hiring that puts the victim into the hitman's line of sight. Because otherwise, the victim and the hitman would never cross paths. Right, exactly. Shoot, I, so, I've, I, I've never walked down the street and had a hitman come up to me and be like, hey, by the way, you want to kill somebody? No, you have to physically go uh-huh. out and search for these people. Like, you have to put thought into this. You have to know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about premeditation. That's the ultimate premeditation right there, in my opinion. Right. And one of the things I mentioned, too, is that um, there is usually, generally, there is, I mean, no physical evidence tying anybody to the murder. Um, But that's because the murderers are, even with a 
barely adequate trigger man. The murders are planned out enough so he plans ahead enough to have a pair of gloves so he doesn't leave fingerprints. And to wear a hat right. so he doesn't shed hair. And to wear, you know, not to touch anything or to know everything that he does touch so that he can wipe it all down. Um, so that that's one of the things that makes it hard to investigate and or prosecute uh, just about everybody. Unless you have somebody from the inside. If you have the middleman who just kind of puts a person A and person B together, if that person decides to save their own. And, and a lot of times one of the other challenges is the trigger man and the middleman, when they go to testify against the person who took out the contract, so to speak, um, they're saving their own asses. And there's no denying that. I mean, in the Hannah Smart case, those kids were saving their asses because right. they were facing life in prison uh, time, because that, that would have been in, like, 1991. They were facing life in prison uh, if they were convicted of the murder of Greg Smart. So, yeah, they're saving their asses, and that's that's another thing that makes it exceedingly difficult to uh, prosecute and get a conviction. And we'll talk about some cases that that they uh, where there were there wasn't a conviction. So, but that's on. By the way, I was. yeah, I, I feel like we can't go past Derry, New Hampshire, without making the Stephen King reference. I know, I, you know, I was watching one of the. It was a special on Pam Smart case, and I was watching, and I kept thinking about the dream. I wonder if she heard Pennywise in her dream. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> I swear, every every book and he writes. Her hair, though, poor Derry. Her hair at that time, it kind of, if it had been red or well orange, it would have looked like Pennywise, because that was the 1990s and the big hair. Right, right. So, so you um, just got done talking about Greg Smart, correct? Well, no, we talked about. I was talking about Bart Whitaker. Um, he was eventually caught. I think it took him. Uh, I think it took him a year or two to finally arrest him. He fled at one point, and um, but he was eventually arrested and tried and convicted and sentenced to death. The state didn't seek the death penalty against Champagne and Bashir. Uh, and at his punishment phase, uh, Kent Whitaker did, you know, ask the jury to spare his life, and the jury elected not to not to do that and sentenced him to death. Um. And uh, that that's another topic is I think families should be heard and should be given consideration, but I don't think what they want either way should be controlling on juries, judges, or district attorneys. Right. So because I, I can't – Whitaker did not want the state to seek the – seek the death penalty against Bart, let alone actually get it from a jury. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of crit- criticism of the DA by advocates for Whitaker who are saying you didn't seek the death penalty against the trigger man, but you're going to seek it against, you know, the guy who lost his mother and brother. And it's like, what in the heck is wrong with you? The reason he lost his mother, he didn't lose him. He had somebody kill him. That's not loss. Murder. Right. Um, exactly. So, he, he has no loss in that case. Let's be honest. He has no loss. He has uh, he has murder. He obviously didn't mm-hmm. care about him and feels no remorse. So uh, why would the person be? Uh, why would we worry about the person's feelings? Right. So, but I do feel for his dad, and and like I said, you know, he's forgiven him, and that's you know that's that's what he has to do to be able to go on and. I think there's another case in Texas where the father, the daughter, you know, sent people in to kill her family and uh, managed to kill her mother and two brothers. Uh, But her father was not killed and was left alive. And for him to deal with his pain, he has to forgive her and he has to maintain his relationship. And I respect that completely. I feel bad for him that he's put in that position. Um, But there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's what he's got to do. I know other people who've been, you know, had loved ones killed, and they, you know, they too had to come to a point where they either had to forgive or they had to continue living in pain. Right. And so they, they chose to forgive because that enabled them to start, rebuilding their lives. And hopefully when we talk to uh, Nicola Hood next week, we'll get a, a, a first-hand perspective on that because uh, he lost his older brother, Michael. Right. That'll uh, be to, interesting. Uh, to murder in an attempted armed robbery. And mm-hmm. so we'll go into that next week. So... Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much Bart Whitaker. Bart Whitaker is also another whole show in itself. <laughs> Pam Smart, Dixie Mafia, and Bart Whitaker. Um, because there's such a wealth of material because the cases have been going on for so long. Uh, I actually had to use Wikipedia and articles uh, to get the information because the, the stacks of court opinions and briefs are overwhelming. Right. Right. So, so that's pretty much all about Mr. Whitaker, you said. So what about uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Smith? What's the uh, details surrounding that one? Well, Ernest Smith was murdered in New Orleans East uh, at his residence on April 12th. 2006. This would have been something a little bit less than six months after Hurricane Katrina. Um, His case went unsolved for several years. And then his uh, widow, Emma Emma Smith, who remarried a gentleman by the name of James Raines, Lost husband number three. 
right. under suspicious circumstances. Mm-hmm. When uh, people started investigating, they found that there were some suspicious circumstances in her first husband's death. So this this woman was widowed three times. Right. Um, and uh, police investigated. They were eventually able to develop information that uh, Emma had been insuring her husband for large sums of money. That's always and then, a, a red flag. Getting someone to kill the, her husband. In That's the case of Arnold Smith, it was a gentleman by the name of Alfred Everett. And uh, again, you know, the, these were uh, Everett and Rain were both convicted, but their cases were entirely circumstantial because it was 2013 before they were able to develop enough evidence to get an indictment. And they went to trial. uh, Everett went to trial in 2014 and was convicted. Emma Rain was going on trial. She had a lot of legal problems going on. And she ended up pleading guilty. And um, so, and it's really sad when I was Looking for pictures, I could not find a picture of Ernest Smith or James Rain mm-hmm. to post. Um, I couldn't find their grave on find a grave. I found pictures of Everett and Smith and Rain, but not uh, Emma Rain, but not on um, not Ernest Smith or James Rain. So that's that's kind of sad that nobody's ever. Uh, posted pictures of them, or I don't know, maybe nobody had pictures. Uh, this was again just after Katrina for earnestness. So, but uh, uh, NOPD worked on uh, Ernest Smith Smith's case, and I think there was a break in the case when James Rain was killed. Mm-hmm. Because I think James Rain was had some peripheral involvement or some knowledge about Emma Rain murdering Ernest Smith. And so uh, when he was killed, his family started talking. And um, that was, you know, that was her undoing because, so the worst mistake she made was killing James Rain because then his family decided you know, they, they were going to talk. And um, I don't think she's ever been um, convicted in James Rain's death. I didn't find anything on that. So that's something that may come up and bite her on the ass soon. Right. I'm sure probably will pretty quickly. Yeah. So... Uh, and she was apparently also involved in a lot of fraud. Um, there was insurance. There were some insurance fraud allegations. She was a tax preparer at one time, and she was accused of stealing money from people. 
that she was supposed to be preparing taxes for and stealing identities. And uh, 2013 was a very bad year for Emma Rain. And so, um, and it didn't help that uh, Alfred Everett also decided when he was in prison, in all his parish prison, to talk. So, um, yeah, that was that. So they were they were both they were both convicted, and they've both been sentenced to, I think, life. They were convicted of second degree murder. Um, more likely than not, the uh, the time it took to break the case, there wasn't enough evidence for first degree murder, so they were charged with second degree because that was that was what the uh, prosecutor could prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess if you don't want to outkick your coverage a little bit, that's okay to do. Well, I mean, some. Some most actually most prosecutors they go by what they can prove based on the evidence that they have, and I think something people forget: police and prosecutors don't pick their evidence and they don't pick their witnesses. Right. And murder for hire cases are a prime example of that, because police and prosecutors, in order to break a case they may have to have a co-conspirator tell them what happened and where to look for evidence and what kind of evidence they can get. And these cases um, in the, uh, for example, in the Sherry murder, the FBI was able to get phone records and connect uh, Halat's law office to Angola and Kirksey Nix they were able to get bank records to uh, uh, document the theft of money from Nick's, which was coming from the the blackmail scam, and supposed to be held by Pete Halat until Kirksey Nix had enough money to buy Edwin Edwards' pardon. Um, and you know they were able to show that. Paulette and and Lorraine Sharp were making a lot of entries into the, the deposit, safe deposit box, and that's where the cash was kept, and the cash was gone. And right. the most tragic part about the Sherry's is that Pete Halat, even though he's the one who stole the money, he told Kirksey Nix that it was Judge Sherry. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and then Pamela Smart, um, you know, really there wasn't a lot of evidence, but they had the, the, the basically the co-conspirators with her and their statements to police and their testimony at trial, it, it was consistent. And, you know, why would they have any reason to kill her husband? How would they even know where her husband was? on the night of May 1st, 1990. How would they get into her condo? Because there was no evidence of a break-in. Because she left the bulkhead door open. She told them what time he was going to get home. She told them to be at the condo before he got home. 
And then she also told them, don't use a knife because it'll make too much of a mess on my white carpet and my white furniture. Oh, wow. So, um, but again, I mean, there wasn't really any documentary evidence to corroborate what these kids were saying. It was circumstantial. And Pam Smart testified, but I, I don't think her... Um, a lot of times a, a defendant will do a great job on direct when their attorney is throwing them softball questions. But then a lot of times you see when the prosecutor gets, gets up for cross-examination, you see a change in the defendant. And then the real defendant comes out. And I think that's what happened in this case. She was trying to be sympathetic, but she was just coming across as not at all sympathetic. Right. Absolutely. I I mean, it absolutely sounds that way. But, Lisa, we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break. Hopefully everything works here. Hopefully I got all the kinks (laughs) fixed and everything works. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the acquittals and uh, attempted cases, I believe. And uh, Uh, Well, there are acquittals in cases where – it was an attempt because police became involved, uh-huh. and then there are acquittals in cases where there was an actual murder. Okay. Which I think are okay. the saddest of all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are the saddest of, because, you know, somebody actually was uh, – the police weren't able to stop it. But we'll be right back with more Claire and Convincing. For your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
enjoying it because I need my notes and I didn't have them. <laughs> oh, so I was hoping oh, we would chit chat a little bit while I walked back to the uh, office. <laughs> well, of course. Let, let's just chit chat. What shall we chit chat about? Nothing. I'm back. <laughs> oh, looky there. We didn't even have to stall for time that long. That's how we roll no. here on Clear and Convincing. <laughs> So, all right. So we talked about Ernest Smith. Mm-hmm. I believe now we're, we're going to go uh, New Hampshire. I believe we're at the New Hampshire acquittal. Yes. Uh, Maurice Temple, uh, Plainfield, New Hampshire man, was found not guilty on criminal solic- solicitation of murder conspiracy to commit murder and attempt to commit murder. Uh, He and his Mm -hmm. 83-year-old mother had been charged, but she was ruled not competent to stand trial. And um, his trial basically ended in acquittal because the jurors interpreted some of the evidence as entrapment. Right. That you know, Why did the they consider it a, this was an, Well, this is a case like Dahlia DiPolito. Uh The police were able to intervene and send in somebody to pose as a hitman and get taped conversations and things of that nature. And, uh, Temple wanted to kill his ex-wife because he had been arrested for non-payment of court-ordered settlement from the company, uh, the couple's 1999 divorce. Right. And so in spite of the fact that uh, uh, the middleman got a down payment and uh, you know, the, the they hired a, a friend of the ex-wife, and even though he got a down payment in IOU for the other half of $5,000 when the job was completed, uh, and they had that evidence, the, the jurors still interpreted it all as entrapment. Kind of like Dottie Dippolito tried to argue. Remember, she argued the police came in and they took advantage of her and uh-huh. you know, orchestrated all this for the cops TV show. That was right. kind of the same, you know, kind of the same thing. These jurors, that was their defense that, you know, he, that's not what he, he didn't really want to kill his ex-wife. He was just frustrated and angry, and so he was talking. And, you know, this guy took it too far. 
Oh, of course, because, you know, every person who's frustrated with their uh, significant others like, hey, I want to kill them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I know people say that. But, you know, when when you pay somebody $5,000 and give them, give them an IOU for another five, when the job is completed, it, it's gone from just talk to action. Right, uh, but yeah, again, I mean, the jury, they, they they felt maybe that he was egged on by the middleman. Or even right. egged on by the man who was going to carry out the murder. And so uh, they acquitted him. And his mother was ruled not competent, so she's never been tried and probably will never be tried. Right. Right. So what happened in Pennsylvania? A man by the name of Gregory Hess was on trial in York County, Pennsylvania, for uh, criminal solicitation in Pennsylvania. And he had been charged uh, after he gave a gentleman by the name of Calvin Jones, Jr., $1,900 at a Denny's as payment for the hit on his wife's boyfriend, Christopher Ward. So apparently the wife was stepping out on him. He decided to kill the other man, and um, she was his estranged wife. And they agreed on a price between $25,000 and $40,000. And like I said, he paid him $1,900 at Denny's. And um, in his case, he claimed that he was only paying Ward to rough his wife up. Or he was only paying Jones to rough up Ward. He didn't actually want Ward killed. Right. So, again, arguing I never had intent to kill. And, again... One of the difficulties is the main witness is Jones, who was the person who was supposed to carry out the hit. And he's saving his own butt. So um, the, the defense was able to attack his credibility. And he was facing a, a maximum of 81 years on several charges in several counties in Pennsylvania. So he was oh, in some serious legal difficulty. <laughs> um, yeah, he wasn't going to see the light today for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and again, you know, there's no evidence, especially in this in this particular case, because the the contract was was never carried out, was never completed. And so there's not going to be any evidence to corroborate anything the hitman says except the money that he was paid. Right. And in this case, uh, Hess's defense also uh, attacked the police investigation and said, well, they, you know, they didn't collect phone records that they should have collected. And, you know, so... uh, whether 
the phone records may not have existed by the time they knew about the whole conspiracy. I mean, this is based on news articles because when there's an acquittal, there's not going to be any appellate opinion. Hopefully right. someday nationwide, all courts will have – all you know, trial courts will have their records online for free – and people, you know, will be able to read indictments and uh, briefs and things like that. Uh, but right now, that's not the case in most uh, jurisdictions. So you're kind of li- – I was limited on these with what I could, you know, where I could get information. Right, so, absolutely. Um, and that was – so he was he was not convicted – and um, he uh, he does still face criminal charges from another solicitation attempt, and this article was back in twenty. Let's see. The article was the trial was back in twenty fifteen, so he may have been convicted or. Acquitted on those charges as well. I don't know who he wanted to kill that time. Um, that's one of those, like, you know, George uh, Zimmerman. Uh, I wonder if Hess's second right. jury bought that. <laughs> yeah. George Zimmerman seems all and, about trying his luck. <laughs> I will I will see if I can find any more information on Hess because I, I didn't notice that he was facing additional solicitation charges. In my initial reading. Um, And then the last one is from uh, my mother's home. And in fact, it took place on a lot of the old stomping grounds, my mother. And as kids, my sisters and I used to spend time in uh, Del Mar, Delaware, in southern Delaware. And a lady by the name of Corinna Joy... She lived in Selbyville, Delaware, and she was arrested by authorities in Wicomico County, Maryland, which is just across the state line. Delmar is named Delmar because the center line in town is the state line. So if you put your car, center it over the center line, the driver's side is in one state and the passenger side is in another state. Right. And my my grandfather used to love, whenever we'd drive through Del Mar, he would move over to the middle of the road. He'd go, all right, you girls are in Maryland, and I'm in Delaware. Or you girls are in Delaware, and I'm in Maryland. That pretty much sounds like Texarkana uh, with Texas Uh and Arkansas. Yeah, and and there's uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas. It's kind of the same way. You go across the right. river, you're in Kansas. You go across the river, go back across the river, and you're in, you're in Missouri. So uh, uh, she tried to hire someone to kill her brother-in-law, and um, they had recordings of her again talking about the murder, giving the uh, hitman money to buy a gun, promising additional money to pay for the gun and Maryland police had it on tape 
But again, the the jury just didn't convict her. And right. uh, luckily, though, you know the the authorities in Maryland were able to intervene and prevent her brother-in-law from actually being killed. Right, right. So, so um, they were actually able to prevent the murder in this one, but she still got right, off. Right, right. Correct. And this is, you know, like I said, she paid him money for the gun. They had her on tape talking about the murder. She provided him with the target's name, address, and photographs of his home. Uh, how, you know, how you can think that she didn't do That's anything wrong. That's pretty often shut in my mind. It is beyond me, but uh, the jury didn't didn't buy it. And I think it, it's, again, because this is the type of crime, you're not going to have a lot of physical evidence to corroborate anything anybody says. And you're not going to have physical evidence to prove that what the contractor, you know, the person trying to arrange the hit, that they actually wanted the person that they're trying to kill dead. And so they can, you know, they can explain what they meant and they were angry and they never really intended for it or they thought they were acting for a reality show audition or, you know, whatever crazy stories people can come up with. And um, so, yeah, so she was cleared and she is a free woman in southern Delaware. Right. That's just and beyond me. When I when I saw that when I saw the Delaware and I saw Delmar, I, I thought to myself, Oh Lord, please don't let her name be Rebel. Because <laughs> that's my mother's family. <laughs> if that had been the case, I, I have a bunch of people that I could have called and said, Okay, you gotta tell me what happened with this person. And they would tell me. So. Right, right. So let's talk about the people that actually managed to accomplish the mission. What about this one in Texas? T. Colin Davis. And I, I know you have never heard of this case because it was all over and done with before you were even born. Uh, T. Colin Davis was a member of a very, very, very wealthy oil family in Fort Worth, Texas. And, um, I mean, they had money like Dallas money, okay? Oh, you're too young to even get that reference, aren't you? (laughs) No, I know Dallas. Okay. I'm sorry. So anyway, um, uh, his wealth at the time of his first trial was estimated at over $100 million, which would be $430 million in today's money. So, okay, he was like richy, rich, rich. His second wife, Priscilla Lee Childers, 
and they were married in 1968. Uh, it was his second marriage, her third, and she did have a daughter from her first marriage and two children from her second marriage, and one of those was a daughter by the name of Andrea. Um, they had a you know, storybook romance, storybook first marriage. He built her a beautiful house, a lot of land in Fort Worth. But unfortunately, in 1974, their marriage broke up, and they began dating other people. And then, of course, when there's that much money involved, there is going to be a dispute on who gets what when the marriage ends. And so Priscilla and Colin were engaged in protracted divorce proceedings, uh, part of which led to her being granted the right to live in the Stonegate property. And she, uh, Davis was ordered to pay uh, spousal and child support payments. On August 2nd, 1976, an intruder entered the mansion and killed Andrea, who was at that time 12 years old. She was home alone after returning from Bible study. When Childers and her boyfriend, Stan Farr, got home, they were both shot, and Stanford died at the scene. Uh, Priscilla was pretty gravely injured, and I believe that the uh, the injuries that she sustained in that shooting had an impact on her health for the rest of her life. And I remember reading that she died several years ago. Um, Childers identified Davis to police as the man who shot her. Um, but there was also, they thought that he had hired someone to commit the crime. Right. Right. And so, so, but I, you know, he may not have been a murder for hire after all. Now that I'm looking at it, it's been so long since I, I read about this case. Oh, okay. He was arrested in uh, 1978 for trying to hire a hitman to murder Davis and the judge overseeing the divorce litigation. Right. And uh, he was acquitted a second time on that. Okay, so he, he did commit the first murder himself. Tried to hire somebody to commit the second murder and was acquitted in spite of the uh, recorded evidence, and that was a trial where the first use of forensic discourse analysis on tape-recorded evidence was used. So, right. I knew there was a murder for hire in there somewhere. <laughs> so, where are we at here? Uh, Louisiana, right? Your home state yeah. had a murder for hire that was my actually home state executed. And it, and it was actually in my uh it, it was actually in New Orleans as well. A uh, woman by the name of Charity Wynn uh and her secret 
boyfriend, Koi Kwong Wong, kill her husband, Lien Nguyen, who was found shot to death in New Orleans East on April 23, 2013. Uh, she was tried, and um, Kwong, Wong, the conspirator, was actually convicted and went to prison for a lengthy sentence. Um, she was acquitted with a vote of 10 to 2 not guilty and 11 to 1 not guilty on obstruction of justice. Right. So um, the husband had been kidnapped, driven from the home, and shot and left in a, a deserted area that's known for drugs. His hands were bound behind his back, and he had been shot several times and left to die in a ditch. In a, you know, New Orleans East still, since Katrina, has not come back to full what it was years ago. And um, so... Uh, but, yeah, she was con- acquitted. I, I just don't think they had very much evidence. They had a lot of circumstances, like she and her boyfriend moved in with her sister after her uh, husband was killed. Um, and uh, they they just didn't – there was no evidence. Again, this is probably a, another no evidence. So, right, right. So, what's the story on the Virginia one then? A pretty same paint by numbers, lack of evidence type deal. Yeah, uh, he uh, this gentleman killed a business part- partner, and this actually it happened back in the eighties. Frederick Ramsey, an Alexandria businessman, was accused of hiring three men to kill his business partner. And he was acquitted of capital murder charges in 1985. Um, Again, you know, these cases are hard because you're not going to have any evidence tying the person who contracts the murder to the murder itself. And defense attorneys will use that. Right, right. Absolutely. I I mean, and that's their job, to be honest. Yeah, uh, and, and people, I think, look at it as, you know, he didn't pull the trigger, and it was all circumstantial case. You know, they had one of the trigger men who was cooperating, and those are very, you know, very easy witnesses to tear apart. And so... um he was acquitted in 1985. Right. So let's talk about these challenges the prosecution faces in these uh, in these cases. Uh, you know, the lack of evidence, the you know, really using a word of a co-conspirator and entrapment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the 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 lack of or absence of evidence. You know, even the killers, even the most inept killers, 
can plan it enough that they don't leave fingerprints, they don't leave DNA, they don't leave, and most of these cases predate DNA by, you know, several decades. Um, but they can, you know, not leave evidence behind. Uh, they can, and, and a lot of times, you know, they, they don't shoot them up close and personal. They don't stab them, they don't beat them. They shoot them from a distance and they don't have any blood on their clothing or anything that ties them to that crime scene. So, uh, and then when you're talking about the person who arranged the murder, who, who bought the murder, I guess it's a more apt term, there's, no, there's not going to be any physical evidence. Even if the person, if it's a case where the person is present when the crime, when the murder is committed, any evidence that they have on them is explained by them just being present. Although sometimes their story and their statements are what lead police to suspect that there's something more going on. Right. But, uh, yeah, there's there's a, a lack or an, an, a complete absence of any physical evidence. And the further along we move, the more juries want physical evidence. They want fingerprint. They want DNA. They want something that conclusively proves that everybody charged had something to do with that crime. Yeah, I mean, that without a shadow of a doubt type of stuff like we were talking about before. And these, yeah, and these are just the type of cases where you just don't have that. Now, some with phone records and text messages, as we saw with Dahlia DiBolito, you know, they can get documentary evidence to corroborate things. And they can get text messages which may have incriminating statements or may provide information to fill in a motive. And I think in a in in some of these cases, um, there there was a lack of motive. The jurors didn't know why the person wanted that person dead. And the mo- whatever motive may have been presented by the prosecution uh, in trial was just not something that they could get behind and say that person is guilty. So, uh, and again, you know, you have, you're dealing with cases where they generally aren't solved unless somebody who was on the inside comes and says, okay, cops, I will tell you what happened. And then police have to corroborate what they said or what they say happened. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard road to hoe. And it's why sometimes cases take six, seven, eight, nine years to even go to a first trial because they have to gather that evidence in order to get an indictment and in order to pursue criminal charges. And then when when you're dealing with, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where the police are able to intervene and prevent a murder from happening, then you have to deal with entrapment allegations. Right. And so, you know, I, I didn't really I, I didn't really want to do it, but he kept saying we had to do it. 
And he kept pushing me and he kept pressuring me and he kept calling me and he kept doing this and he kept doing that. And we saw that with Dahlia DiPolito. You know, she, they basically said she's not guilty because the hitman was calling her, not the other way around. Hmm. And that's, uh, I, yeah, I special. think that's a, that's a, 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 a case of the attorneys actually drawing a distinction that I don't think is really correct. Um, at least the first call is generally going to be from the hitman to the person who wants to hire them. You're not you're not going to have somebody you know give you a hitman's phone number and say, "Yeah, you're call my boy." <laughs> right? Absolutely not. Absolutely um, not. And then finally, the biggest challenge is that you know people can get on the stand and they can explain everything they said and say, I didn't mean that. That's not, that's not really what I wanted. As Dolly DiPolito did, she, you know, got up on the stand in that motion to dismiss and said, oh, no, this was an acting project that we were working on. Wow. And the police took it and then they used it to wrongfully charge me was a crime I didn't commit. Oh, yes, because the police are bastards. Uh, of course, she didn't have the balls to, to testify in front of the jury. And I read something interesting. Um, I don't know if the law in Florida is the same, but I wondered with that motion to dismiss hearing, I wondered why the prosecutor wasn't asking a lot of questions that I would have asked. And as it turns out, the prosecutor at that motion to dismiss may have been unable to really question her about the merits of her case. Even though she was testifying in support of a motion she brought to dismiss her charges. Because I found out that they could not have used her testimony at the motion to dismiss hearing in the trial unless she testified. Right, right. Absolutely. So, I would um, agree with that. Because I, I, I was kind of hoping that they would get that, that testimony because she was lying her ass off. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no, you know, tactful way to put it. She was lying her ass off. Under oath. And she supposedly, you know, found God while she was awaiting trial. Right. Of course and, she did. Um, Everybody in prison so, finds God. I know. She wasn't even in prison. She was on house arrest. Well, true. Everybody facing something finds God all of a sudden. It's kind of convenient that way. Yeah. So, but um, Lisa, but yeah, so Lisa she was looks- just crazy. It looks like murder for hire is pretty much one of the hardest things to get a conviction for. But, you know, uh, it appears that, you know, there are some cases where there are convictions. But obviously it seems like it's one of those you just don't know. You're kind of reaching in a basket when you get these murder for hire cases. Yes. And and they are cases a lot of times it takes. You know, it may be four or five years before 
after the murder before anything really develops that the police know it was a murder for hire. They might suspect it was a murder for hire, but they don't have any information. And again, that's generally because somebody gets in trouble, they know something about the case, and they give police the information that gets them cranked, you know, started. Uh, I, I spoke over the weekend with Keith Bell, who was one of the investigators involved with the Sherry murders. And, I mean, they worked hard trying to put a case together and trying to find out who did who did it. But it wasn't until Mike Gillich came forward that some of the pieces that they had found over the years that they were able to put them together because he was able to fill in the blanks. And then he right. was able to say, uh, okay, well, when you know the, the hitman stayed with this tow truck driver or the hitman stayed in a rental property owned by this, you know, local businessman. And then, you know, we, we test fired the gun in the rental property. We just fired the bullets into the floor, and he was able to go to the house, get a warrant, and go under the house and see the floor and see bullet holes. And with a metal detector, collect the bullets from under the house. But until right. he, you know, until Mike Gillich gave him that information... That wasn't even on the radar, you know. And little things like the the plates that were on the vehicle used in the hit, which had been found abandoned, belonged to a uh, a vehicle that was owned by a former Air Force guy who had been stationed at Keesler and who lived in an apartment complex in Biloxi. And when he left Biloxi, he just left the car behind. So then they have to go to the uh, apartment manager and say, do you remember this vehicle? What happened to it? And he said, oh, well, I called this guy, and before the tow truck came, I called this other guy, and he you know, he has a, a salvage yard. And I said, you can come get all these things. Or he was a locksmith. You can come get the locks. You can come get the trunk lock. You can come get the glove box lock. You can come get the door locks. And so he came and got stuff off the car, including the license plate. And he held on to the license plate for four years and then put it on the car used by the hitman to drive around Biloxi. But those little pieces, they didn't come together until they had Mike Gillich. Right, right. And, well, Lisa, you know, it's... it's Go ahead. Amazing. Hopefully, he will come on at some point in time and talk to us about some of the cases that he's investigated. So uh, he he's not able right now to talk about this, you know, uh, publicly about the Sherry case because Kirksey Nix is still trying to get out of prison. Right. And he might say something on the air that can get twisted around in a post-conviction claim. And so he doesn't want to risk that. And I don't, I don't want any, you know, anybody to risk that um, by any stretch of the imagination. So, all right, well, that is, 
That is our episode tonight. <laughs> We're done. Uh, Woo! You want me to go ahead and see the outro? Of course. Go ahead. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week for Episode 24, State of Texas versus Kenneth Foster. In the early morning hours of August 15, 1996, Michael LaHood Jr. was shot in attempted armed robbery in San Antonio, Texas by Mauricio Brown. Kenneth Foster, who was, a driving, who was driving a vehicle that had been involved in a string of armed robberies that night, was charged capital murder and sentenced to death under Texas law of the parties. Join Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan on Tuesday, October 2nd at 8 p.m. Central for a discussion of the case against Foster his controversial death sentence and the commutation of that sentence by Governor Rick Perry in 2007, three hours before uh, Foster's execution. We'll also be joined by Nicholas Nico LaHood, Michael's younger brother, and we'll talk to him about Michael and learn more about the impact that Michael's death has had and continues to have on Mr. LaHood's family. So, we hope to see you next week or talk to you next week. Be safe. Have a good one. Good night.